Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Ash Wednesday is here, just a couple of days, and this year the Holy Father has asked us to fast on behalf of the people of Ukraine who are enduring this invasion by their powerful next-door neighbor, Russia. The lust to dominate, St. Augustine talked about it, the libido dominandi, that we nation seeks to dominate nation, person seeks to dominate person, that the answer to it is grace and virtue. And the virtue that we're going to talk about today in Oral Valley Catholic is the virtue of temperance, the right ordering of our passions. There is a variety of ways of looking at what it means to be a human being in American culture, but the dominant perspective is really from Immanuel Kant. The idea that we're these uh, computers, these rational creatures who make rational choices, it's hard to under believe that Immanuel Kant ever went through puberty because to think of uh, any human being as just purely reason, like Mr. Spock on Star Trek, is to simply misunderstand the entire human project. And so the purpose of developing the virtue of temperance is so that we can learn self-mastery, self-control, continence, chastity, moderation in our appetites. And Ash Wednesday is once again our entering into battle against these forces from our nature that seeks to uh, turn our appetites to simply pleasure. And when we substitute pleasure for joy, uh, we leave ourselves open uh, to a really troubled life. So, Today in the Gospel, again, we're in the Sermon of the Plain, or as it's called, Sermon on the Mount in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke, a level place on a mountain. Jesus calls us blind guides. Uh, last week, do you remember, he told us, judge not lest you be judged. And today he gives us the, the reasoning for this eighth Sunday of ordinary time. It's because we're blind guides. Uh, we're controlled by our own passions. Um, we see everything through our desire to dominate others. This we need to work against. And so here's what I'd like you to please think about as we go through this podcast uh, for Oral Valley Catholic. First, accept you're not a computer. Uh, you're not just a reasoning machine. You have the gifts of reason, but passion could undermine your reason. Self-interest could undermine uh, your reason. And so because we are people of passion and feeling and emotion and reason, we need self-discipline so that we can rightly order all of these conflicting impulses and rationales in our life. What does Ash Wednesday have to offer us? a chance to once again focusing, uh, focus on getting control of ourselves. Here's what I'd like you to think, is your mind can be a tremendous servant for your will, helping you to reason through um, all the struggles of your life. However, if your mind is overwhelmed by passions and appetites, it becomes a fearsome master.
Ask anyone who has an addiction to sex or alcohol. So let's turn and let's talk about uh, virtue and the acquisition of virtue and how it is that we can work against passion's desire to disturb our souls. I made a reference to the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who lived uh, in the uh, 18th century and into the early 19th century, uh, 1724 to 1804. Why refer to Immanuel Kant? Uh, Kant had this project that in uh, the demise of uh, religious belief in forming a basis for European culture, a process that had begun in the Reformation with Martin Luther in the 16th century. Kant wanted to find a basis for morality, which he was going to call the categorical imperative. But the idea is that you could come up with a, a way of understanding human behavior, how human beings ought to, uh, ought to behave, which is what morality is. It's always about an ought. Immanuel Kant thought that he based it completely on, on reason. So a categorical imperative is, assumption, is essentially a, a basic moral principle that you do because rationally it's just the right thing to do. So, for instance, you shouldn't murder other people because uh, you yourself don't want to be murdered. And so that becomes this rational basis for what uh, ultimately will be called deontological ethics, which is basically rule-oriented ethics. It's not Catholicism, but it's had a pretty dominant uh, effect on, uh, on American uh, public ethics along with uh, consequentialism, that's John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Uh, that's called consequentialism um, or, or uh, uh, utility ethics. You know, uh, your moral action should be towards some great good. But Catholics have always thought about virtue. Um, passion's always a part of uh, what we do as human beings. Uh, we do want to do the good. However, uh, the problem of trying to always do the good is good for who and what is the greatest good? Can you go to the drug addict who has perfectly good kidneys and say he's abusing his kidneys? The greatest good was I could take his kidneys and I could give them to this mother of three who needs new kidneys. I mean, that would be a greater good than watching them waste in the gutter uh, to someone who is uh, abusing abusing their lives on drugs. But what Kant and deontological ethics and Bentham and Mills and utilitarian ethics, this consequentialism, what those two systems don't allow for is moral absolutes. Moral absolutes are the fences you build around human life, that there are certain things human beings simply do not do. Uh, it's become mostly the province of Catholicism, and I think the Orthodox also, because when you have moral absolutes, you're talking about uh, a, a system, a way of understanding that, pr that produces and protects excellence in people. And so in moral action, Catholics have rules like the Kantian deontological ethics. Catholics want to do the good, as in utilitarian ethics, 
But the fundamental concern is, is what kind of person uh, do we become? So, for instance, we drop weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and now as nuclear weapons have proliferated, we are always fearful that they'll be used against us. Why did we justify dropping those weapon systems on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Because the Japanese had started that war, and we were going to lose the Allies. We're going to lose a million-plus soldiers on the invasion of Japan. So the greatest good was we sacrificed these two cities for um, the salvation or the saving the lives of all these Americans. And you can understand what the argument is. But what kind of country did it make the United States and its decision makers? What has been the legacy coming out of the Second World War? We're talking about fasting this Wednesday for uh, what's happening in Ukraine and what brought about the Second World War were these totalitarian regimes that invaded their neighbors. Um, well, I'll let you ponder that as we talk about how it is that we try to to protect reason, even as Kant or Bentham or, or Mills would talk about it, from the influence of passions. Because whether you're a Catholic virtue ethicist or a Kantian or a Benthamite, um, still passions uh, are what undermines our enjoyment of the world and sometimes distorts our moral judgments. But you know, when I was explaining to you what uh, this idea of Kant's ethics, which had such an influence on the American Republic because he was such a prominent political and moral philosopher at the time of the American Revolution. And so when they wrote the, the, the Constitution, Immanuel Kant was the advanced state of learning uh, at the time. However, obviously, if you look at European history and American history since, something uh, other than reason is operative. But what I would like to say is that Kant was actually on fairly traditional grounds when he was talking about uh, human beings as basically rational choice makers, because that's how Socrates and Plato thought about it in the 4th century BC. Socrates and Plato thought that all moral instruction ought to be provided, though at the time it was kind of elitist instruction, for males of a particular social class in, in Athens, uh, leadership, that these are the people that really needed to understand virtue. But that the idea was, is if you told people what the good was, and they learned what the good was, and they understood that their happiness, their eudaimonia, their participation in a good life, depended on their virtue and making good decisions, that of course they'd always want to make virtuous and good decisions. That the basis for moral, um, moral education was always information and understanding. Well, you can understand why that makes great sense. Even Thomas Aquinas would say one of the, the things that undermines moral action and moral culpability for making bad choices is simply ignorance. Uh, being a young person in the United States who grows up unduly influenced by popular culture, especially about human sexuality and the joys that it can bring, 
How do you expect them to have the information they need to make good decisions about personal relationships? But if you just accepted what Socrates, Plato, and I think what Kant uh, would have taught, that education's the key, then the only defense to acting badly is ignorance. So how does that work in your life, where you think you've known what the right thing is, but you haven't done it? Um, the idea of Platonic and Socratic moral decision-making I don't think survives um, puberty, frankly. But at the heart of it is, well, what are the other moving parts of, of morality? And so for Thomas Aquinas and, and, and others, Aquinas is not the first person to think about this. Aristotle had a critique of Plato um, where he talked about character development and the roles of passions and the importance of virtue. But uh, Plato's position, though it has some logic to it, simply doesn't have the legs to explain what we understand about uh, aberrant behavior. Um, lack of moderation, lack of temperance in um, sexual appetites and appetites for power, for money, for what food can, uh, joy that food can give us, that we can undermine the goodness of things simply by abusing them. We substitute our desire for pleasure for the next five minutes for what joy is until you just destroy uh, by overuse and abuse, immoderation, the good things that are in the world and in our lives. And so let's take a moment and consider uh, the role of passions and how various thinkers have thought about it over time. Sigmund Freud thought, for instance, that all human decision-making was really based on passions. Uh, he followed David Hume in this, a Scottish philosopher who was roughly a contemporary of Immanuel Kant, who couldn't see that you could come up with a rational case why a good was better than evil. This really goes back to Niccolo Machiavelli. The idea that a nation can bring a good state of affairs out of doing something that for a virtue ethicist like myself would just be something you never do. Um, you do not drop weapons of mass destruction onto urban areas in Japan. You just don't do it. You don't incinerate babies in the wombs of their moms to try to bring out a good effect. Because once you admit that that's moral action, then evil can achieve good, at least in your little moral universe. But it violates first principles. And the first principle of non-contradiction is do good, avoid evil. And if you think you can do good by doing, uh, doing evil, well, then, my friends, you've arrived at the 21st century and the invasion, of the invasion of Ukraine or any American adventures that have destabilized the world that we live in. Freud would say all of that decision-making by Vladimir Putin or the Bush White House or Harry Truman or whatever that you would find morally problematic is really just rooted in their passions. What makes them feel powerful? What gives them joy? Well, it would really be the mirror image of Kant, right? That there was no rationale that helped Putin or George Bush or Harry Truman make the decisions they make. Or, for that matter, why a 16-year-old girl and a 16-year-old boy can rationalize what they do in the backseat of their dad's car. Emotions and passions play a role, but so does reason. So 
for Plato, the idea is if you just tell people the truth, then that's what they'll do. He was aware of passion, but apparently he did not spend a great deal of time thinking about how it would undermine how you know the truth. And I think I'm preaching to the Catholic mind when I say that Aquinas is in the middle between these two extremes. The importance of reason, very fundamental for Aquinas. Um, the recognition of the role that passion plays in mor moral decision-making, very upfront and center in Aquinas's moral uh, theology and moral philosophy. So the middle of the road for Aquinas is virtue. And virtue is always acquiring basic moral virtues or acquired virtues. People, according to Aquinas, and I think by our own human experience, uh, have the natural capacity for virtue, but without instruction, they may not become virtuous unless they're very thoughtful, intelligent people. But also that the natural proclivity for passion uh, and the desire to be happy with what will make me happy in the next five minutes undermines the bigger sense of the role that the basic acquired virtues can bring into our life. We all know the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, but the acquired virtues are justice. That's the right ordering between us and God and us and each other. Everybody gets what it, their due is. Courage is patient endurance. For a soldier, patient endurance in, in, um, in battle. For the person pursuing virtue, it's you succeed, you fail, but every day your boots hit the ground and you're in the game. For Aquinas, prudence and temperance are like the book covers for all of virtue. When we talk about justice, courage, prudence, and temperance, we're talking about the cardinal virtues, the hinge virtues that everything swings on. But there's all sorts of other basic virtues in there that can be subsets of uh, temperance, like chastity and sobriety are part of what uh, temperance is. But temperance is about self-mastery and good decision-making. Well, prudence is about good decision-making. But if prudence about making good decisions, temperance about moderation of appetites, you can see why these two acquired virtues need to be practiced in order to become habits, but why they are the book covers within which all other virtue is possible. Because if you don't know how to make good decisions and you can't control your appetites and your passions, how are you going to achieve any other virtue of justice, courage, or just fill out the dance card? So today I want to concentrate a little more on temperance as a goal for Lent beginning with Ash Wednesday. The book of Wisdom in chapter 9, verse 11 says, For she knows and understands all things, and this is wisdom, and will guide me temperately in my affairs and safeguard me by her glory. For Aquinas, wisdom is one of the fundamental blessings of human life. Wisdom is really what the uh, Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain is about. Blessed are the poor, for they shall see uh, the kingdom of heaven. Wisdom is understanding really what's important in life and ordering your life around it to make prudent decisions and decisions of self-control, of temperance. 
And so temperance does not mean getting rid of pleasure or denying that pleasure is important in our life. Friends, pleasure is important in all of our life. But temperance says that pleasure is at the service of joy. It does not substitute for joy. Just uh, from personal experience, you know, a beer with a friend can be a wonderful experience. Ten beers may blow that experience up. And so learning how to have limits on your behavior and your, and your pleasures is essential to be happy in life. Because if you can't limit pleasure to something that's rational, then you're going to behave foolishly. And I think most human beings have discovered this in personal experience. So um, the ways of folly in blowing up temperance is a lack of sobriety in life. Uh, the ways of folly, it's, it's making fun of everything, cynicism, seeing through everything and blowing everything up, believing and trusting in anybody is a lack of moderation and understanding the world around you. Excessive desire for physical pleasure uh, undermines any pleasure at all and obviously any experience of joy. Temperance is what protects our joy from the excess desire for pleasure. That lust to dominate, that if I can get what I want, I will be happy. And if you have learned anything in your life, you have probably learned if you get exactly what you want, as soon as you have it, you probably don't want it anymore. And then you want what someone else has. That is a lack of moderation. That is intemperance. Why do pleasures have so much power uh, over us? It's because we all desire heaven according to Aquinas. We desire the fullness only God can give us. And since to cooperate with grace requires the daily acquisition of the acquired virtues of justice and courage, moderation and prudence, that day-to-day -day desire, choice, act of the will, work to follow Christ. Um, it's much easier just buy a 12-pack on the way from home. Walker Percy once said, why do people get addicted to drugs and alcohol? Uh, because it makes them feel good um, until the next morning. But as the Greeks would talk about enkrateia, self-mastery, self-mastery is an act of reason that helps us to see that the role that pleasure can play in our joy, um, a beautiful married life between husband and uh, wife, who their friendship is pleasurable, it's useful, and it's oriented to this great common good of the family and their common life. Their joy is protected to the extent that they can live chastely and soberly in that marriageable unit. People who date young people, their capacity for entering into a relationship of joy is directly proportional to their willingness and their ability to exercise moderation, uh, to pursue the um, virtue of temperance and prudence, and then to look for that in their potential spouse. How could you be happy if you're trying to live a temperate, prudent life, but your spouse is out of control? The answer to that is obvious. And that's why these are very important issues in dating. They're very important issues 
and marriage. They're very important issues in our professional and our work lives. How important temperance is, because if you cannot rightly order action, if you cannot exercise self-mastery, wow, um, it's just not possible really to take much joy out of life. It's just a series of meaningless pleasures. You know, the Catechism says in chapter 2346, or paragraph 2346, charity is the form of all virtues. Love is the form of all virtues because all virtue is really about how we love ourselves and love others. Under its influence, chastity appears as a school of the gift of the person. Self-mastery, learning myself, what punches my buttons, how it is I can live, where I can go, where I shouldn't go, what I need to do, what I need to avoid. All of these things are about self-love and the love of other, others. And this virtue of charity has as one of its fruits chastity, which is fidelity and loving kindness. And that virtue of chastity, according to paragraph 2347, blossoms in the true gift of friendship, which I talked about in my last podcast. It shows each of us how it is we're to follow and imitate the Lord who has chosen us as his friends. Chastity is a promise of joy in immortality. Chastity is expressed in our friendship, our marriage, and I would say in our ministry as a priest. You know, Augustine, St. Thomas would said in his commentary on 1 Timothy chapter three, although all moral virtue is concerned primarily with the passions, there are two which make for sanctity, and those two are chastity and sobriety, both aspects of temperance, learning how to love appropriately and in context uh, in the relationships that we have, and being able to make sober decisions about the same. But if we live immoderate lives, if we're overwhelmed with just our need to embrace, to touch, to drink, to consume, friends, chastity isn't possible, and real joy in our relationships is not possible. Chastity, sobriety, the fruits of temperance. Let's take a moment and pull this podcast together and uh, talk about Ash Wednesday and the gospel for today. And so in the gospel of Luke, we're still in the Sermon on the Plain where it's said that Jesus is on a mountain, but he comes to this flat place on the mountain. It's the same homily, the same teaching that Matthew talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here's what Jesus says uh, for our guidance today. Jesus told his disciples a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pet? No disciple is superior to the teacher, but when fully trained, every disciple will be like his teacher. Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove that splinter in your eye, when you do not even notice the wooden beam in your own eye? You hypocrite. Remove the wooden beam from your eye first, and then you will see clearly to remove the splinter in your brother's eye. The acquisition of virtue. Um, the resistance of being dominated by passion. Because we can see the evil outside us, and maybe it's an evil that runs our life. And that somehow we think we're taking the side of the good, and we just attack it in our culture and in somebody else. Really what temperance is, is 
the gift of sobriety and chastity in our decision-making, including our desire to tell other people off. Remember last week, Jesus said, judge and you shall not judge. Because judging is, according to St. Augustine, an aspect of the libido dominante. It's one thing to share your own struggles with temperance with other people, with the, with the sense that this becomes this connection and friendship and a witness that helps them to take courage to continue the struggle as perhaps they're trying to develop the uh, virtues of chastity and the gifts of sobriety. But if we're blind people, blinded by our own appetites, trying to profess virtues to other people that we ourselves either do not possess or worse, have no real desire to possess because we don't really have a plan for it. It's easy to see what's tearing up the world around us. It's sight, insight, enlightenment to see that it also has an effect on me. The gifts of the acquired virtues, justice and courage, prudence and temperance, are these lifelong um, journeys that we make following Jesus. And, you know, the real truth of St. Paul and these great witnesses to the faith is when they witness to their own struggles. Because when you do that, it's like Jesus taking and putting himself into the waters of baptism. We take the place, our place with other sinners. If we're on top of the mountain talking to people, talking down to people, we're probably undermining uh, the gift of the gospel in our lives and also undermining our desire for self-mastery. So there's different ways we all abuse our own nature, that we need to exercise self-control and self-mastery, that we can know the difference in our lives between joy and mere pleasure. But I want to leave you with uh, some of the words from T.S. Eliot's poem, Ash Wednesday, um, which is a meditation on his conversion to Christianity in a world that, to him that seemed uh, to be falling apart. And he wrote this, I believe, in the, these, uh, around this time of the Second World War and uh, how devastating that was for um, uh, European, uh, European culture. Like this invasion of Russia into Ukraine, it's like so much we've seen in, in the past in Europe, this desire to dominate our neighbor. But here's what Eliot says in the closing versions, uh, verses of his poem, Ash Wednesday. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Our peace is in his will, and even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee. Those are great words to begin uh, the great season of Lent. Um, to not just get uh, blinded by what we think are our own virtues. To remind ourselves of our need to be temperate and to acquire real virtue. And in so, to enter into the joy of the kingdom of heaven. This is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. God bless you, my friends. 